after that, I may package those two together so we can focus a little more on Christmas and the messages. We'll see about that, but uh, we'll either wrap this up next Sunday or the following one. And Job asked God a lot of questions. As you read through the book of Job, you see that Job himself questioned God numerous times. And Job's friends asked him questions as well. But what we come to now is the question that God asked Job. And we find it in Job chapter 38. Now God asked Job a series of questions, but it all starts with this one question. I think this is the big question. And sometimes we ask questions to get an answer. Sometimes we ask questions to make people think, don't we? And I think that was God's intent, not so much to actually hear Job's answer to his question and then all of the questions that followed that, but to force Job to wrestle in his own heart with how he was responding to his great trial. In fact, one writer says, in God's speeches in the last chapters of Job, every major section includes a question. The use of questions is a very effective teaching method. They involve the learner by calling forth from him a personal response. So God's use of questions may indicate that his speeches were not designed to be merely a display of his power and authority, but also for a relationship purpose. That's interesting to think about, isn't it? So God's question, big question, and then subsequent questions were not just to kind of teach Job a lesson, but there was a relational intent there. They were designed to teach Job about God, to help Job come to know his God better, and about himself, and to draw forth a response. And I would agree. I think that the question and the subsequent questions that that God asked Job was not merely showing Job who's in charge, but teaching Job about God himself. And to, to not only get a response from Job, but to lead Job toward the right response. And that's our gracious God. He wants to move us in the right direction. He wants to help us to grow. So let's look at the question that God asked Job. And I think it is a question that each one of us should, should learn from and think about our own response to as well. So look at Job chapter 38, Job chapter 38, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, here's the question, who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. Now, if you're using the outline that I've provided, you can see it's not laid out like a number one, number two, number three main points. It's more of a, of a flow of thought, and that's how we're going to approach this today. And let's start by thinking about the, the words that God used here. He says, who is this who darkens counsel? Sometimes we think of counsel as advice, so I'm going to ask someone for counsel, meaning I would like to seek their advice on a question or a problem or an issue that I have or a decision I'm making. That's not what this counsel means here in Job 38, verse 2. Uh, a word that, that is more close to the idea is the word purpose. So if you have a purpose, you, you've developed what you want to accomplish, 
and probably some plans that go along with that to accomplish what you intend. That's what purpose means. It's used of an organizational plan, like, like Jethro instructed Moses to use back in the book of Exodus chapter 18, where Moses was overwhelmed with all the problems of the Israelites, and his father-in-law said, hey, here's a plan for you to follow. And there's a purpose in it. There's a, a goal in that. It's used of, of a battle plan as well. So, so he's talking here about not, not just advice, not just uh, having some information that's necessary to solve the problem, but actual a purpose. Who is this who darkens purpose, darkens a purpose? What purpose is God talking about here? Well, he's talking about his own purpose, God's purpose, God's counsel, his intent, his grand plan for everything, the universe and everything that's in it, including us, right down to our our very difficult issues, and day-to-day problems that we have. Now, I'm not going to have you turn to these. You can if you want to, but I'm not going to turn to them together. I'll give the references. I want to, I want to give you five places in Scripture that use this idea of God's counsel, and I want you to absorb and process what this means as far as God's purpose. The first one is Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. Now, in contrast to that, Psalm 33, verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Now, that is a universal claim. That is an absolute claim to God's sovereign purpose and the fact that it, it will happen and nothing can change it and nothing will stop it. Listen to Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. There it is again, God's broad, sweeping statement about his purpose and that it will be accomplished. But listen to what he says next. Calling, this is Isaiah 46, verse 11, Calling a bird of prey, P-R-E-Y, from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. And what he's probably referring to there is a national leader, Cyrus of Persia, who 150 years later would attack Babylon and end the 70-year captivity of Israel. So here Isaiah the prophet is, is giving the message from God, saying, my counsel will stand, I will do all my pleasure And he would call this bird of prey from the east who would accomplish his counsel, the man who executes my counsel. So God even uses the godless. God uses the great to accomplish his purpose, doesn't he? That's Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 11. This uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Ephesians 1, 11, Paul says, In him, that's in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the... What do you think the next word is? 
the counsel of his will. So here, God is accomplishing his purpose for our salvation and through our salvation. It is his grand plan. It is his sovereign purpose. That's Ephesians 1, verse 11. Two more. Hebrews 6, verse 17. Thus, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. And he's talking about his promise, his covenant to the Israelites and really all who believe. Now, who knows what the word immutability means? Does anyone tell me out loud? What is immutable? What does that mean? What is it? Unchangeable. It doesn't change. God's purpose is set. It is fixed. So it's going to happen. Here he's talking about the purpose that he has for his people, the Israelites, and for all who believe in him. That's Hebrews 6.17. And then Proverbs 19.21. Thus, excuse me, there are many plans in a man's heart. So we have all kinds of ideas. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. You and I may or may not. We may have plans. Those plans may or may not happen. When God has plans, when he when he enacts his counsel, it will stand. So, God asked Job, Who is this who darkens counsel? What was God saying? Who is this guy who is obscuring my purpose? Who is casting a shadow? Who is who is placing a fog, who, who veils my purpose, who keeps it from being seen. Who is this? Who is hiding my purpose from view? So now he is, he is challenging Job, isn't he? He's saying, who is this who's obscuring my purpose and hiding it from view? God has a grand purpose for you. And it is possible to obscure it, to hide it from view, from yourself, and from others. How? Well, look at Job 38, verse 2 again. Who is this who darkens counsel? By words without knowledge. So what, what God is saying is, Job, you have a lot of things to say. And Job did have a lot to say about himself, didn't he, and about God. But what he was saying is, Job, you actually lack full knowledge. Words without knowledge. I mean, there was a lot of information in there. If you look back at what Job said, there's a lot of good things in there. But it was, it was incomplete. It was limited. At first, the book of Job tells us that, that Job did not sin with his lips, right? Then he did declare his innocence, and God did not contradict him as far as him being generally a righteous man. But Job did something else, didn't he? Look back at chapter 31. We'll just dip into some of Job's words here for a minute. Job 31, verse 1. Job 31, 1. I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my way 
my ways and count all my steps? If I've walked with falsehood or my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way or my heart walked after my eyes or any spot adheres to my hands, let me sow and another eat. Let my harvest be rooted out. He's saying, God, just, just point it out. If there's something specific, I've done. In fact, look down at verse 35. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my mark. Oh, that the Almighty would answer me that my prosecutor had written a book. That the Almighty would what? Verse 35, answer me. And that is an extremely bold statement that Job makes here. And, and he's, he's, he's basically saying that my, he'd written a book. In other words, he's saying, what is the list of charges? He's challenging God to give him a list of the reasons for his suffering and pain, is what he's doing. And it seems that that is when Job goes too far, right? Because he lacks understanding of God's great purpose. Now go back to chapter 38. And look at what God says. Then the Lord answered Job. Okay, Job, you want an answer. Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? When I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors? When I said, to the sea, this far you may come, but no farther, and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It takes on, on form like clay under a seal and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the unpraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth. Tell me, Job, if you know all this. Do you hear it? Do you hear God's response and, and the way that he calls Job out and helps him to see the fact that in the span of the universe and in the infinity of knowledge and wisdom, Job has a little speck of dust, if even that, compared to the knowledge of God. And God's plan and God's purpose. So what's he doing here? He's demonstrating to Job how, how little he knew. God demonstrates to Job how little he knew. And we have to recognize as well that our knowledge is very limited. Our knowledge is limited, isn't it? Now, you can, of course, and many of you, I'm sure, have read through Job chapters 38 through 41. And this is where God just pounds Job with these questions and what a what a spectacular description of of the world and creation and all these wonderful things and this is God himself telling us 
what what nature is like and what the, the world is like and from the skies to the sea and everything in between. There's this fantastic description of, of the world. But all through it, and, and I'm just going to skip, and so so just kind of look with me in, in, in verse in chapter thirty eight, uh, verse thirty three. Chapter 38, verse 33. Do you know? You see it? Verse 36. Who has put wisdom in the mind? Who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Look at the beginning of chapter 39. Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months they fulfill? Do you know the time when they bear young? So, so chapter 38 is about earth and sea and day and night and, and depths and expanses and light and darkness and weather and stars and all of that. Chapter 39 is about animal life, their nourishment, their reproduction, their strength, their flight. Look at chapter 39, verse 26. Does the hawk fly by your wisdom and spread its wings toward the south? And of course, Job in his heart has to be just shaking his head. What was I thinking? No. The answer is no. Chapters 40 and 41 describe, uh, again, nature, but he focuses in the second part of chapter 40 and then chapter 41 on the probably what would have been the the greatest, biggest, largest animals known to man in chapter 40, verse 15. Chapter 40, verse 15, look now at the behemoth, we don't know exactly what he's referring to there. We can, make, we can imagine maybe what he's talking about. We don't know for sure. Which I made along with you. And then describes this, this beast that's this extremely large, huge, powerful land animal. And then chapter 41, verse 1. I like to fish. He's saying, what do you think would happen if you caught this on your line? Can you draw out Leviathan with the hook? And again, we don't know if he's talking about a whale or what it is, but this, is, this would have been an extremely large sea creature. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook or snare his tongue with a line you lower? And of course the answer is, of course not. No, I can't do that. So Job is being faced with his limitations, and God is describing the, the vastness and the greatness and the power and the strength and the complexity of the universe from great to small. It's beyond Job's knowledge. It, it ex- exceeds his awareness. And, and it far exceeds his ability to control it. And God is saying, I am the creator. I am the ruler. And I am the sustainer of it all. And the implication is that God has a purpose for it all and through it all. And don't you just enjoy the beauty of creation? Don't you just love the, the creatures and the flowers and, and the, the weather elements and all of that? And just to think that it's not only there and our great God made it, but he actually has a purpose in it. It displays his glory. It accomplishes his will. And just like he called that king from the east to execute his purpose, he, he can call the sun and the clouds and the storms and the rain to accomplish his purpose as well. This is our great God. So, how do the questions God asked Job apply to us? And this is where we get into our, uh, our outline a little bit. So, this question that he asked back in chapter 38, verse 2, Who is this who darkens counsel 
by words without knowledge, this question probes two things. First of all, it probes the possibility of our losing sight of God's purpose in the midst of our suffering and pain. We can lose sight. We can know God has a purpose. We can be familiar with some of what God's purposes are in our lives. But in the midst of our suffering and pain, it is possible for us to lose sight of that purpose, isn't it? As these mornings, the nights are colder, and sometimes in the morning you uh, walk outside, and if you park your car in a driveway or a parking lot, you might find a coating of frost on the windshield. And if you're like me, sometimes you're running a little bit behind, and so you're in a hurry. And you should take time to defrost the windshield, at least scrape it off, but you, you flip the defrost on, and you get this little, little hole in the frost that you can barely see through, right? About, about like this, about this big. And so because you're in a hurry, what do you do? Well, you don't have to, you don't have to, uh, to indict yourself, but sometimes it's like, okay, I think I can make it. I think I can look through this little hole, and as I go, it's going to get warmer, and it'll expand, and maybe I hit the windshield wipers, it'll start to clean it off even more. Well, that's dangerous, isn't it, to do that? Because your sight is limited. You can only see what's right around you, what's even just barely in front of you, if that. And it's dangerous to do that. And that's what can sometimes happen with our suffering and our pain. We, we only see what's right in front of us. And our, our awareness and our understanding is limited to this little spot, this little scope of experience that we're having right now. We don't see the big picture. We don't see the road around us and behind us and what's coming ahead of us clearly and plainly. We have to be careful about that, don't we? And that's what this question probes. Is it possible that in the midst of our suffering and pain that that our sight is very limited? We're only seeing what's right next to us, right in front of us, versus God's grand plan, the bigger picture, Proverbs 33, excuse me, Psalm 33, 11, the counsel, the purpose of the Lord stands forever. Ephesians 1, 11, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has this great plan, and he is, is, is infinitely more intelligent than we are, and he knows what he's doing. That's probably a good way to say it. In common, simple language, God knows what he's doing. So when he allows the circumstances that cause the suffering and pain, he knows what he's doing. And we can say, yes, I know God has a purpose. This question also probes how our limited understanding affects our ability to endure suffering and pain. We naturally expect life to go smoothly. Even though we know hard times can come and tragedies can happen, we're often surprised by them. It's like, oh, where did that come from? And we can be deeply disappointed. There have been times in trials that that we've experienced when I've found myself disappointed in God. That's a pretty serious place to be, isn't it? when circumstances or people cause us suffering and pain. And it can affect our ability to endure. It's like, well, why even keep trying? Why keep living for God? Why keep being faithful? Why keep trusting him when I I did that and here's what happened. I want to read something to you. This was written by a lady missionary. 
and she and her husband served in a jungle region. She wrote, I began to think when I lived in the jungle, by the way, this, this is describing about the first year of her and her husband's missionary work. Bible college graduates ended up in a South American jungle. I began to think when I lived in the jungle of the harmony of God's universe. So she's looking at what kind of God was describing to Job. I could see his love in creating a hummingbird with flashing color and dainty wings, the power of the divine imagination so stunningly displayed to Job in the descriptions of dawn and darkness, hoarfrost and thunderbolt, wild goats, asses, oxen, and ostriches, and those awesome beasts, behemoth and leviathan, that power seemed present to me, she said, in the great silence of the forest and in the tropical storms, and the design of the insect and the piping of the tree toads. What kind of imagination did it require to bring such wonders into being? My mind soared, trying to comprehend it all. I found it easy to worship the God who showed himself in these things. Then she asked this question. But what about the poisonous snakes, the vampire bats, the cockroach worms, the scorpions? Are these also necessary to the world's harmony? That question took me back to the beginning of things, the great unanswerable. Was sin necessary? Could men have lived in a world without suffering? And she says, I didn't know the answer then, and I don't really know it now. But I think that during that first eventful year as a jungle missionary, I had my first inkling, it's not a tidy world we live in. And during their first year, her husband had been involved in a construction project. They had, they had cut the timber, milled the lumber, constructed buildings for their, their mission Uh, central uh, headquarters there and a river flooded and washed it all away and she had worked on doing translations and developing uh, written language all of her materials were in a suitcase it was on top of a bus she was taking a trip and it was stolen happened in their first year and then you'll recognize her name possibly her name's Elizabeth Elliot She and her husband, Jim, were missionaries in Ecuador from 1953 to 1956. And she goes on to say, The God of the pretty, precious little bird is the God of that fierce creature, Leviathan, whose sneezings flash forth light, whose heart is hardest. And listen to what she says. As she observed all this, she says, I was learning. And what I saw around me, the life of the forest, and what I found within me, hope and disappointment and confusion that underneath are his everlasting arms. Now, what's important about what Elizabeth Elliot is saying here? What's important is that when the day came that she got the news that her husband, along with other missionaries, were killed by the Ayuka Indians trying to do gospel work to reach them. When she got the news that they'd been killed, she already had her view of God in place, didn't she? She knew her God, and she was wrestling with the the conflict and the seeming contradiction of the great and the good with the, the hard and the evil and the destructive. And she had that relationship with God in place. 
Your view of God and his purpose determines how well you will endure suffering and pain. And I think that is some of what the question that God asked Job was probing. So what is the question for us? Is it possible that you have lost sight of God's grand purpose? And if so, especially if that happens during a difficult time, it may be because we sometimes will only accept what we understand We want to be able to understand what's happening and why it's going on. And if it it goes beyond our capacity, that we don't like it, then we become disappointed and even become embittered, resentful, hard, cold. And this is a problem. Because there's a lot about suffering and pain that we do not understand. And just like God was teaching Job, he is also teaching us. And God does take us through trials to test us and teach us and to grow us. And we have to come to that place where we do accept what we don't understand. Not just with a, with a sigh of resignation. But with a loving trust in the God who has a sovereign purpose. Not just, oh, well, okay, you're a God, you can do this. It's hard, it hurts, somehow I'll make it through. But you know what? I'm actually resting in the God whom I know. And I want to show you a place where another question was asked, this time by Jesus to his disciples. It's Mark chapter 4. Would you go there with me, please? Mark chapter 4. I see a similarity or several similarities between what Jesus and the disciples experienced here on the Sea of Galilee when the storm came up to what Job experienced as well. Here we have Jesus with his disciples and Jesus actually here initiated the trip across the the lake there and the storm comes, it's overwhelming to them. The disciples question him. Jesus is in complete control, and then he asks them a question. So look with me at Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35. On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. So you've probably heard descriptions of this, right? So this is, this is not just a few ripples on the water. I mean, this is a storm at sea, and it could take them down. It could sink them. They could die. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? See the question? They're questioning, aren't they? Jesus seemed detached. Jesus seemed disinterested. He seemed to be completely unaware. And they make an accusation. Do you not care? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, he turns the table and he asks them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? So what was it that he was teaching them, and how did he want them to grow? He wanted them to grow in their faith, didn't he? In their trust in him. So rather than being fearful, rather than being anxious and and panicking, 
thinking that not only was God not aware, but he didn't even care, but that actually he had a purpose for them, right? His purpose was to grow their faith. So that on a very micro scale, his purpose for them in that moment was to grow their faith. So, so we can say pretty much through any trial, well, I know God's doing that. He is growing my faith. He is helping me learn to not only just be okay with what he does, but actually trust in him. And, and of course, the answer to, to does he care was, yes, he does. And he had not relinquished control either. He was in absolute and complete control of what happened, wasn't he? In fact, the next verse says, and they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is this? They knew it was Jesus. But what kind of person is this? What kind of savior is this? And again, that's the, that's the response, right? Who is my God? What is he like? How can I know him? What are the qualities? What are the characteristics? What are the truths about God that can emerge in my mind and fill my view so that I know my God in a greater and deeper way? Growing in faith means you, you trust him. It means you accept what he does. It means that you, that you claim his promises. It means that you pray. It means that you praise him as well, doesn't it? Job said, and we'll see this when we talk about the answer, Lord willing, next week. Job said in Job 42.2, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose can be withheld from you. And he's really, or I would say the disciples really, are echoing what Job said. Saying, you know what, we, we need to grow in our faith, but also they're saying, you are a sovereign God. You are sovereign. And this test, this trial, this storm, was encouraging them to recognize his sovereignty, but also to rest in his sovereignty. What is God's sovereignty? It means he's supreme over all, and he is ultimately in control. He's supreme over all, and he's in control. And we can rest in that. But, but sovereignty goes further. It also means that he doesn't answer to us, doesn't it? He doesn't have to answer to us. Now, sometimes he does give us those reasons, but he doesn't have to do so. He may or may not reveal to us an immediate good reason for our suffering and pain. Go with me to Acts chapter 2. Peter's preaching. Talking about what happened to Jesus. And he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Let's look there. Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man tested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Look at verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. There it is. God's purpose. It was God's purpose to allow and even, even to include the death, the crucifixion, the sacrifice of his son in his unfolding plan. You, he says, have taken, Peter says, by lawless hand, to crucify and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it is not possible to 
even Jesus himself entrusted himself to God's sovereign purpose, didn't he? He entirely committed himself to God. He entirely rested in the sovereign purpose of God. He took him to the extremity of the crucifixion. And Jesus did that. He rested in his Father's sovereign purpose. And if he did, we can. And the outcome of that, of course, was the provision of forgiveness and salvation for everyone. That was one part of God's purpose to fulfill his glorious plans. And just as God accomplished something great and wonderful and beneficial beyond description through the death of his son according to his purpose, he can do things in the And you can commit yourself to God just like Jesus did and know that God brings something good out of just like he did in case. Have you ever heard these words, God moves in mysterious ways? People say that when an unlikely team wins a championship, right? Like, it's just like a, like a catchphrase, it's like a, like a common thing. When people say it when something strange unfolds and, and they don't quite understand it, and just almost as kind of just a, just a good comment. Well, God works in mysterious ways. You know where that came from? You have the quote there in your notes. There was a man that, uh, named William. And um, if you want to sound really smart when you talk to people about this, pronounce his name Cooper. And they'll say, no, it's Cowper. And you can say, no, it isn't Cooper. Because it really is Cooper. I don't know why it's spelled that way. It's not that way. You say, oh, it's Cooper. Okay. I had a musician correct me one time. No, it's Cooper. Okay. Now I've always said it's Cooper. So William Cooper was actually great friends with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. William Cooper wrote songs in our hymnal like There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He was a prolific hymn writer, uh, amazing poet, and the lyrics of his hymns are just so packed and powerful and beautiful. There's a collection of, of John Newton's and William Cooper's hymns called The Holy Hymns. And just beautiful, beautiful songs. A lot of them we don't use anymore, but some of the more Enduring one's heart and our hymnals and, and to sing. William Cooper was plagued with depression. In fact, he tried to drown himself at one point. He was just a hurting guy. He just had all kinds of turmoil in his heart, in his mind, in his life. But somehow, out of all of that chaotic mind and emotion, came just these beautiful, wonderful hymns. And I want you to listen. As, as I read this hymn, you have it in your bulletin. We're going to sing this. I want you to listen. Just, just listen to what he says. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. Remember last week we looked at the section of Job where where uh, where he's talking about you know man mining for gold and copper and all this and what he really used to find was wisdom. I don't know if Cooper was thinking about that, but making him think of that. This stanza. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble 
sense. Job, do you know? You know. I think that's what he's talking about here. That little speck of dust that our understanding represents compared to the infinite knowledge of God. Our little grain of knowledge. Don't judge God by our limited understanding. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence. What's providence? We think of that as a circumstance in our lives that God has allowed our reign. He hides a smile on face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. In other words, what you taste now may be bitter, but one day a beautiful sweet flower will emerge. Blind unbelief is sure to err. I think blind unbelief is saying when you don't accept what you can't understand. Well, I can't understand it, so I'm not going to accept it. Blind unbelief. If that's how you function, if you understand something, you're, gonna, you're not going to accept it. It is sure to err. And, and this, this scan, his work in vain, God is his own interpreter. One day, you will make it fun. The question for you is, have you lost sight of God's grand purpose? Is it because you will only accept what you understand? And are you willing to yield to your sovereign God and believe that he is in control, and that like Jesus, he is also close and concerned. And to learn what he is teaching you, and to grow in faith, and to rest in his thought. Father, please help us to learn along with Job, learn from Job, to hear you, consider the question, take it seriously. Pray for my brothers and my sisters here this morning that are reaching out with a hand of faith and taking what you're giving them. I pray that some sentence, some word, some comment, some example, most of all, your truth, linger in their minds, the imprint deeply on their hearts for the days and years. We pray in Jesus' name.